0: All of us on some level are broken, but we've been repaired, and that brokenness is not something we need to be ashamed of or try to hide. It is that brokenness that has allowed us to become the special person that we are.
1: Hey guys, it's Kathy Heller. Welcome to the Kathy Heller podcast. This show is meant to be a guide for you. I want to be that mentor who can hold your hand through this journey. I know that there are so many twists and turns in navigating not only what is happening in our mind, but also understanding strategically how we want to get from where we are to where we want to go. In this show, we're going to talk not only about how we can start to become aware of what are the subconscious things that are holding us back and how we can instead choose thoughts that are actually going to propel us forward. But in addition to changing the landscape internally, we are going to talk about the strategies that actually will help you to build a profitable business, getting paid to be you. Because when you have a business where you do what you love, you never really have to have that sense of work because it's a pleasure, because it's joy. And really, I want you to have the most abundant life. I want you to have the kind of life that you love waking up to every day that you don't feel like you need a vacation from. So together on this show, every single episode, I want to be your friend. I want to be your mentor. I want to show you what is it that I think has really been insightful, been helpful. What are the tools and strategies? What are the mindset shifts that have helped me? And what are the things that have helped my guests to get to where they are? How can we together sort of cross this river to the most fulfilling life where we show up and we feel like we are living into our potential and having the most gorgeous, beautiful experience because after all, that is what we all desire. We're all craving to have the most joyful, beautiful life. And I really believe that we can design that and that we can experience a life that we just absolutely love. And not only will we enjoy it, but it will be a possibility for other people It will show other people what's there for them and then maybe together each one of us by being the happiest versions of ourselves and being the most fulfilled versions of ourselves we will help other people to reach for that higher branch and to find that in their own life hey guys it's kathy heller welcome back to the kathy heller podcast Dr. James Doty is with us today, and this is such a phenomenal conversation. I'm so excited to share it with you. I read his book, Into the Magic Shop, and it was life-changing. It's just even more magical to have him on the show, so I can't wait to dive in. Before we do, I want to let you know that we did something we've never done before. We created a way for you guys to be in Abundant Ever After for the whole year. We have a way in which you can do one of two levels, either the gold track or the VIP track. And this program is going to be here for you so that you can work with me all year long. If you'd like more information, you can either DM me on Instagram at kathy.heller because my team is always there. Or you can go to kathyheller.com slash join to get the details. This program is designed to help you have the most abundant life. And it provides three things. Number one, It gives you the step-by-step direction so that you can take the action you need to take so that you can allow the abundance in. It's going to help you to find within you what you were born to do so you can get paid to be you. It also is going to give you incredible accountability. You're going to have the accountability from me, from my team, from your peers, and we're going to set it up in a way so that you will show up. And take those steps. And the other thing that it does is it helps you to rewire your subconscious mind. It helps you change the station that you're listening to, help you change the programs that you start to see clearer. You start to see further, and then you can actually take the action because you start to see just how possible and just how available it is for you to be showing up and living the life that you really want to live. So, You can do either the gold level or the VIP level. And this program is now open all year. And it's something that we are just so excited about. You can go, like I said, to my Instagram and send a DM if you'd like details, or you can go to kathyheller.com slash join, but we would love to see you in there. There's such an incredible group of people already in there and the level of growth and the things that are happening in people's lives are just so awe-inspiring. So if you want to start working with me today you want to start working with me this week and you want to spend the year together, go to kathyheller.com slash join. No time like the present, right? So as I was saying, Dr. James Doty is here. He's a neuroscientist, New York times, bestselling author, adjunct professor at Stanford school of medicine. And if that wasn't already enough, he's the founder and director of Stanford center for compassion, altruism research and education, which is all about exploring scientific studies of compassion and altruistic behavior Also, His Holiness the Dalai Lama is a founding benefactor, so you know that what they're doing is really truly the real deal. I came across Dr. Doty's book last year and couldn't stop talking about it. It's called Into the Magic Shop, a neurosurgeon's quest to discover the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart. And his story is just so powerful, and he's gonna talk to you a little bit about it today and the extraordinary things that happen that we see when we can harness the power of both our brain and our hearts. His book is like a combination of scientific study meets memoir meets inspirational instruction guide, all wrapped up into one transformational piece. And he's going to share some amazing parts of that story in this episode, but I highly recommend that you go grab his book. Dr. Doty also has a podcast called Into the Magic Shop, where he shares his wisdom about how to change the course of your life. And he talks with amazing guests like Eckhart Tolle, Marion Williamson, John Hamm was on so much good stuff there to check out. I've been a fan of his work, and this was such a blessing to sit with him. Not only is he so wise and accomplished, but he radiates so much goodness and kindness and humility. I think that's what truly makes him such a special human being. I hope you enjoy this very nourishing conversation, so I won't keep you any longer. Without further ado, please welcome the brilliant Dr. James Doty. I am so happy that you're here. I have read your book. I have talked about you. I can't even count how many times. If I get paid every time I talked about you... I wouldn't even have to do this podcast. I would make so much money just from talking about you. Thank you for being so generous with your work, for being who you are, for having the adventure of a lifetime that you went on and then taking us on the ride and then teaching everybody all the best parts of it, which is what you do. And I don't know how you have the wherewithal and the capacity to be a doctor and be such an incredible teacher of the most beautiful, magical things, but you are doing it all and it's so needed. So thank you for making the time to come. I know you're very busy doing very big things like saving lives. So thank you for coming.
0: Well, thank you for having me. And all of us are doing stuff hopefully that's important and all of us are busy. I also don't want people to believe that I'm able to handle this stuff without a few bumps in the road. I am a human being who tries to do the best I can, but sometimes I fail, sometimes I get close, and hopefully most of the time I hit the mark, but I am by no means a model of perfection.
1: Well, I want to dive into all the things you're doing currently, like the podcast and the incredible research you're doing and and the way you're harnessing compassion. But before we do that, I want to talk about your book, because your book, it's so chalked filled with the most incredible I couldn't put it down I I wound up telling 15 people to get the book I talked about on the podcast so many times and you talk about what you just said in the book which I couldn't believe the levels of humility and magic in the book like from blowing my mind open chapter one chapter five chapter. but then you take us on this journey you're like oh yeah here's where I totally went off course and I was like who has the humility to now be in a place where you have checked the box of every level of success, you're a neurosurgeon, you, you're a professor, and then you're still so humble to say, oh, yeah, and here's all the ways in which sometimes I get off the course. So I felt like this book, and I want to just start with it a little bit, because there were, everything was in it, everything that helped me move forward was in the book. So. For anyone who hasn't read it, (laughs) it's a crime against humanity. If you haven't read this book, everybody has to read it. Hopefully many people have, but by the end, we're going to link to it. You guys have to get it and then you'll enroll in everything he's doing and you'll listen to his podcast, obviously. But can we just talk for a second about this journey of your life and how you have the capacity to even see that you were led to so much? Can we take them a little bit through the story of you and your life? and how you went into the magic shop.
0: Sure. So I grew up in poverty. Essentially my entire childhood, uh, my family was on public assistance. My father was an alcoholic. He was a binge drinker. And my mother had had a stroke when I was a child and was partially paralyzed. She also had a seizure disorder, was chronically depressed, uh, attempted suicide multiple times. I had an older stepsister and a brother, who's about a year and a half older, we were evicted multiple times. And of course, as you can imagine, this is not the ideal setting for one to succeed in life. And of course, I'm sure you and probably many of the listeners are familiar with this concept of adverse childhood experiences. And when a child grows up in an environment where there's poverty where there's drug or alcohol abuse, where there's violence, where there's mental illness, the likelihood for them of achieving what society would define as success is actually very, very low. And unfortunately, what happens to so many of these children is that the baggage from those experiences is so heavy that it leads to them becoming drug or alcohol abusers, or having mental illness, or not having the ability or capacity to sit still enough to learn. And as a result, their future is grim. Plus, when you're chronically stressed, anxious, feel like you don't belong, then this leads to not only the release of stress hormones chronically, but it also leads to the chronic production of inflammatory proteins which are associated with a lot of chronic disease states. So unfortunately, children in these environments have at least two strikes against them, and it's very, very hard to overcome that. I would also preface this by saying that oftentimes people will use me as an example and say, well, look, he was able to do it. Well, unfortunately, my story is in some ways a a one-in-a-million story. I was fortunate several things happened to me that allowed me to move beyond my situation. But it is more likely than not, in most cases, that that does not happen. What ultimately happened to me in this environment was that I was filled with hopelessness and despair, which, of course, is a horrible thing. If you don't have mentors, if you don't have people who care for you, if you don't have resources, if you're poor, the likelihood of having access to things that make a success is very limited. Oftentimes, when it was very difficult, let's say if my father came home drunk or my mother was having some issues or they were in an argument, I would get on my bicycle and ride as far and as fast away as I could. And on one of those journeys, I landed at a strip mall and there was a magic shop there. And I had had an interest in magic. So I walked in. And there was a woman sitting there who had her eyeglasses sort of at the tip of her nose, and she had a chain around the glasses. And she was reading very thick paperback, and she looked up and greeted me, and I started asking her some questions about magic. And she informed me that this was her son's store, that she was simply minding the store while he ran an errand, and that she knew nothing about sort of the magic in the store. But the interesting thing about her was that she had a radiant smile. One of those smiles that embraces you and makes you feel okay. And that's how I felt talking to her. I felt like for whatever reason that I could trust her, I didn't have to be ashamed. So we began a conversation and she actually ended up asking me some fairly penetrating questions or deep questions that normally I would not respond to about my background, where I lived, et cetera. And I was honest with her. And after about 15 or 20 minutes, she said to me, you know, I really like you. I'm here for another six weeks. If you'd like, I think I can help you and teach you something. And so what happened is for the next six weeks, I showed up at the magic shop and she took me into this back room, which, you know, nowadays thinking of a 12 year old child going in a back room with a woman in her 50s is a little strange. but that being said, for about an hour and a half or two every day for the next six weeks, we spent that time together. And she taught me many, many things. And uh, if <laughs> I could pause for a second if you to ask a question or I could continue on. with. No, the story. I'm just
1: literally sitting here with tears streaming down my face because I can't. Sometimes things are so beautiful, you just cry. They're so beautiful. I mean, first of all, I know the story and I'm still crying. I wasn't expecting to cry. I've read the book. I know the book. But it's just so powerful when one person's kindness and full resonance, their presence loves somebody else into life. The fact that you became a person who went on to teach so many people and save so many lives and be in an OR so many times and literally do that which we need most to be done and all of it on some level stems from one person's compassion. It's just such an incredible reminder of the impact that someone can make when they're in alignment and they give to someone else. And it's just so big and it's so rare that to hear you tell the story directly is just, it's so moving. So we haven't even gotten to like (laughs) the crux of it and it's already so big. So tell them if they haven't read the book you guys i'll put the link in the show notes you you have to read it cuz you're going to want to take out a highlighter and you're going to want to do these things yourself that he learned but tell them what she taught you let's talk about what those big breakthroughs were
0: well one of the first things she taught me or pointed out to me uh, was the fact that i was very tense and what i did not appreciate is that when you grow up in a chaotic environment, like I grew up in, you never know what's going to happen next. And as a result, you're always in stress mode, your sympathetic nervous system has kicked in, you're very vigilant, you cannot relax. And on some level, it's also very anxiety provoking. And it also results in you not being present, because you're not able to connect with somebody because you're always looking around to see what might happen. And I was not self-aware of that reality. And she pointed out this to me, and then I realized it, and she taught me a relaxation technique. And, of course, this is one of the first techniques associated with mindfulness. Now, what's interesting is this was in 1968. Mindfulness was not on most people's radar screen, very few if at all. And nor was this concept of neuroplasticity, this ability that we have to change our brains. So she taught me to relax my body. She had me sit up and, with intention, go from the tip of my toes to the top of my head, relaxing my body. Now, you have to, again, understand I was 12 years old, and on some level, I thought this lady was nuts. But I went ahead and did it. And after a few weeks, I actually was able to relax. And after a few weeks, I was actually able to relax and be present. I didn't always feel like something was going to happen. And it was quite extraordinary. Just the very nature of being able to do that was quite powerful. And then the next thing she taught me was a breathing exercise And as many of your listeners know, and I'm sure you know, you know, when you do these breathing exercises in conjunction with relaxing your body, you slowly breathe in through nose and slowly exhale, it shifts you from engagement of the sympathetic nervous system to engagement of your parasympathetic nervous system. Uh, And so what does that mean? Your sympathetic nervous system, as many of you know, is your flight, fight, or freeze response. While your parasympathetic nervous system, which has been called your rest and digest system, is that which allows you to relax, to be calm. It actually uh, puts your physiology, if you will, in alignment. Your blood pressure lowers, your heart rate decreases, your heart rate variability actually increases, which is a good thing. And uh, your immune system's boosted, all sorts of positive effects. And so she put me into that space. So I was relaxed. I had shifted over, if you will, to engage my parasympathetic nervous system. But what this allows you to do, it actually allows you to be present because you're not lost either regretting the past or hoping for a future which hasn't occurred. And this allowed me to be much more attuned with her. The next thing she taught me was actually a recognition that I was hypercritical of myself. I had told myself I'm not worthy. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I don't deserve this. And when you do that, when you're so hypercritical to yourself, one, it limits your agency. And two, it skews your view of the world. Because when you're hypercritical of yourself, of course, you're hypercritical of everyone else and it is not a attribute that's so good it limits you so what i tell people is that when you're hypercritical to yourself it's like laying down brick by brick to build a prison for yourself
2: mm.
0: and it's a prison that not only is small but it starts getting dark and when you are in that prison You start to believe that you don't have any agency. But what we forget is that within ourselves is an incredible, incredible amount of strength and capacity to do oftentimes what many people would consider impossible. But you have to release yourself from that self-created prison. And so once she made me recognize that, she gave me the tools, if you will, to be self-affirmative, to make positive statements to myself, to understand that I deserve to be loved, that I am worthy. And that makes a huge, huge difference. And once she did that, it changed how I saw the world. Because I used to have a lot of anger about the world and how I was treated. People forget that when you carry these deep emotions, this anger, this hostility, it radiates outside of yourself and then people respond to that. And it also allowed me the capacity to understand as an example in regard to my parents that they loved me very much, they just did not have the tools to overcome their own pain and issues that they were suffering with and as a result were not present for me. And when I recognized that and I accepted that they had their own issues that they could barely deal with, much less being there for myself and my brother and sister, it made me much more forgiving and appreciative of their efforts, even though they were not ideal. So then the next step was that once you have been released from yourself, created present, you actually have the capacity to manifest your intention. And that was the next thing she taught me. And she taught me that by using various techniques that now are commonly talked about, as an example, especially with athletes, about visualization and writing things down and things like this, uh, she taught me this technique. And in fact, she had me write 10 things down that I wanted. And then she had me not only repeatedly write them down, but to silently read them, then read them aloud and then visualize them actually manifesting. And that technique of manifesting has really been so powerful in my own life. And so all from this interaction with this woman, she truly changed the trajectory of my life.
1: I mean, I don't have a good word because the word's incredible. We use them so often, we need a different word for this. It's really, it almost feels like a George Lucas movie. It doesn't feel real that this happened. And yet these things happen when you're available for them to happen. I'm just curious, this woman, Ruth, what was her course of study? Was she a Kabbalist, a Christian scientist, a Buddhist? Like, What was her personal spiritual practice or what was the book of spirituality that yeah <laughs> oh, it was the book of ruth yeah
0: well uh, imagine i mean i was 12 years old and i was not self aware enough to ask, to ask a lot of questions <laughs> i'm just so curious uh, so i have no idea i have to say that looking at her if you want to use the term earth mother and i'm sure you may be familiar with that term you know it was clearly evident that she had some relationship with eastern religion or tradition okay. but I never found out for sure. When I met her, she was probably in her early to mid-50s. And only later, actually, did I connect with her grandson. I actually connected with him because when I was writing this book, I mean, actually, I had to go back and track this person down in this history of this woman, which was not a small feat. And her grandson actually indicated that she was this very kind, embracing person, And it turned out, I think I said in the book, is the parents were divorced and the son lived with the mother in another area. And he was supposed to actually be there that summer. And what happened is the parents got into a fight and the ex-wife refused to send him. So it could be viewed as that I was the substitute grandson. And she was sharing with me gifts that she probably would have shared with him if he had been there.
1: Well, there's so many places that I want to take it. And um, I'm so grateful for the, whatever amount of time we have. So we won't get to all of it. I guess one place to go is, is the opening of the book. You're in the OR and you're going through something very scary, which I guess is something that is always a possibility in an OR where things can start to go south and you harness your ability to go back through this process of things that you learned that you were just describing, that she taught you to calm yourself down, to sort of find a power inside of yourself and a presence that overrides some of our initial sort of like where we go into stress. And and by sort of anchoring yourself, you're able to do something that other people would think is a miracle and you save this kid's life. And I just so curious, I mean, here you are working at one of the most well-regarded institutions on the planet Stanford to have you say these things is so big, right? For someone else to say it, it's already big, but for you to say it being co-signed by everything Western medicine has to say, and you're still showing that there's so much left that we can utilize. There's so much available beyond quote unquote, traditional medicine that you can use to heal a person I want you to just speak to that what is that entire realm of possibility and how can we understand healing through the eyes of something that seems impossible and yet you you have this dual understanding where you understand the best that there is to understand about western medicine and you understand something about resonance and presence and energy that allows you in moments where medicine can't help you you reach to a different toolbox I want you to share that because coming from you, I think it means so much.
0: Well, what I would tell my residents is that while we are surgeons and use very sophisticated technology, I would argue that as much of my success as a physician comes from being kind and compassionate. And people actually find that amazing that I would say something like that. But it's true. You know, there was a a statement made by a prominent physician in 1927 who said the care of the patient is caring for the patient. And what people don't appreciate is that when a patient comes to you, they have immense an immense amount of anxiety and distress. And unfortunately, in our quote unquote sophisticated world of medicine where we're dictated by how much time we have to spend with the patient, where we have to input information to computers, where many physicians rely on technology. And studies have demonstrated this. The fact of the matter is that when you truly listen to the patient, when you lean into the patient, when you're with them, when you're not on your computer typing while they're in front of you, when you touch the patient, when you reassure the patient, this has a huge, huge impact on their healing. First of all, uh, they'll go into an operation uh, much less stressed and anxious. And when you're stressed and anxious, of course, you release a variety of chemicals in your body that affect wound healing in a positive or negative way and also affect your immune system. So the very nature of creating this calm environment where the patient feels that they can trust you, where they're with you, where they know that you're working their best interest, has a huge, huge positive effect. It has an effect on the amount of pain medicine they use. It has an effect on the length of stay in the hospital. It has an effect on their 30-day readmission rate. And these are all metrics that physicians are judged on. So it's hugely, hugely powerful. Now, some people have said, well, you should maintain this distance from your patient because you'll get too involved or it'll interfere with taking care of the patient. And this is used as the justification to have the separateness or to be cold and sort of appear like a machine. And while that's true on some level, I would hope that One can be an authentic human being and show love and care and concern, as well as understanding that you have to be, in some ways, a machine that has no emotion to accomplish some of these tasks. Now, I'm not sure if it's my training, but I'm able to do that fairly well. But I have no problem hugging a patient, crying with them because that's what makes us human. And actually, that's what people appreciate. And so I think that if you're able to find a physician like that, I think that's the best combination. Now, I've had people say, well, I don't care what his personality's like. If he's a good surgeon, that's all I care about. Well, on some level, I think you can make that argument. But if you can have both, wouldn't you rather have both? And if you don't have both i would suggest you may want to find somebody who can't give you both
2: yeah it's
1: so beautiful and uh i know that you're doing work to the stanford center for compassion and altruism research it's just incredible that you care this much about those qualities being generated in the world that you would dedicate this amount of time and when you read the book you just see the weaving together of both practice you know, and also energy, right. And how both of those things go together. I, I had Dan Buettner on the show who discovered these blue zones. And I mean, it's uncanny if you just look at the data and how these people live into their hundreds. And I asked him, why is that? And he says, they have less cortisol. They have less inflammation. Why? Yes. They eat a mostly plant-based diet, but it's meditation. It's every morning. They're just harnessing the power of well being. And I want to ask you about, you know, I know that you've worked with his Holiness, the Dalai Lama, in, in different ways. And sometimes I use him as an example because you talked about manifesting before. And not only is mindfulness something people talk about, but even more so, people talk about this thing called manifesting. And in the book, you talk about your list and then how your list kind of changed um, and the ways in which you actually saw how powerful you were. And then you realized what you really wanted to manifest. But I say this because so often people will talk about how they want to manifest, let's say, you know, they want the money, they want the goals, they want the achievements. And then if I ask them why it's like, well, I want to feel good. Right. And when I think about his holiness, the Dalai Lama, I think of someone who feels good. And so I think about joy as being the thing we all really want. But if we think joy is only attached to manifesting stuff, piles of stuff, we're already sort of off course. So I'm curious what you think about that and people's relationship to manifesting. And what do you think they really want? And what do you think they really need to do to manifest joy if that's indeed ultimately what people really want?
0: Well, actually, this is a great segue. I actually just turned in my new book to the publisher last week, which is called Mind Magic, The Neuroscience of Manifestation and How It Changes Everything.
1: And you'll have to um, to come back when you're pre-selling that book.
0: (laughs) But uh, I think, There are several layers to this. And first of all, I don't believe in the woo-woo or the New Age or the pseudoscience. Fundamentally, I'm a scientist. That's not to say I'm not spiritual, but I live in the realm of science. And just as a side note, what manifesting is, is harnessing your attention. And as you may or may not know, our sensory organs process about 6 to 10 million bits of information per second, yet we are on a conscious level only able to deal with about 50 to 100. So there is an immense, immense amount of information that's going in. And of course, this relates to what is necessary to regulate our bodies at a subconscious level. But what we can also do is if we understand the nature of how what we call our cognitive networks work, And we have a attention network, we have a salience network, we have a central executive network, we have a default mode network. If we understand how these different areas of the brain interact, and what is necessary to embed information, if you will, at a subconscious level, then that changes everything. And so... This idea of this ability to manifest actually is quite powerful. As you pointed out, I did make a list. I made a list when I was 12, which would probably be more typical of what people generally think of manifestation. I, I want to live in a mansion. I want to have a million dollars. I want a Porsche. I want a Rolex watch, et cetera, et cetera. And that was based on my own naivete. Now, I got all of those things, and I climbed many mountains. And what happened? What happened? every mountain I climbed, I felt nothing, and I would climb another one. And what I found was that what is a tried and true statement is that happiness is not an external event. Happiness is an internal event. And once I realized that, that changed everything. The other thing, which I speak about in the book also, is we often think About what we think we need versus what we really need. And those are oftentimes vastly different. You know, this idea of, well, if I only had the right job and got paid enough and lived in the right house, drove the right car, had the right partner, everything's gonna be perfect for me. And it's completely untrue. And in fact, sadly, some of the most wealthy, accomplished people I know are some of the most unhappy, miserable people in the world. Now that's not to say, look, if what money can do is to in some ways buy you time because you're not distracted by all the necessities of <laughs> that many of us have to deal with. But beyond that though, money gets you nothing other than oftentimes creating unhappiness. Because once you are at a certain level, everybody wants to be near you. Everybody wants a piece of that pie. And that in and of itself becomes a burden. So I think the most important thing is, one, understanding what you need. Two, understanding the difference between what we term eudonomic happiness versus hedonic happiness. The difference between true happiness, which I would suggest to you, is about being of service and having a purpose. You know, you talked about the blue zones. It's interesting that, while well, oftentimes, and I'm sure you're familiar, there are probably a gazillion Mediterranean diet cookbooks. <laughs> yeah. If you look at the literature about this, the fact of the matter is far, far more, multiple times more important are human connection and depth of relationships, period. You don't have to eat a Mediterranean diet or, all, or exercise. In fact, deep human relationships and, and social connection is far more powerful. Now, that's not to say you shouldn't exercise or you shouldn't eat well. I'm just pointing out, though, that far way more important are the latter. And so I think this idea of appreciating that when you want something to manifest, it also has to not be about you. And what I mean by that is I have nothing against You know, listen, I've had multiple Porsches, Ferraris. (laughs) You know, I live in a very nice house uh, and I'm not ashamed of that. I've worked very hard and have done a lot. But that being said, if all of those things are gone tomorrow, my life is affected zero. Do I enjoy them? Yes. Do I need them? No. And I think what you have to understand though, that there is nothing that gives you a warm feeling or this depth of feeling. Like being of service to others. I mean, I'm sure you can imagine for yourself a time where there was something that you desperately wanted. You had tried everything you knew how to do to accomplish it, and it was not going to happen, you thought. And when you get into that position, you know, the clouds get gray. You say, There's no God. I'm not loved, et cetera, et cetera. And it's a horrible place to be in. You feel powerless. And then somebody, Or some event occurs that saves you or gets you what you want. You go, oh, my God. in a microsecond, the cloud's clear. God loves you. (laughs) You were loved. And it changes everything. And that's an incredible experience to have gone through. But when you are the person who gives that gift to someone, it is so deep. You know, yes, is it fun to drive a Ferrari down the street at 100 miles an hour? Sure it is but it does not compare in any way to the depth, the warmth, the feeling I get when I've actually done something that changed somebody's life. And that's where people get confused. And the problem in Western society is that we have created a culture around consumer capitalism or consumption or wretched excess and have put that on on a pinnacle to make people believe that that is what we should strive for. And the problem is that the people who've achieved that, they have an emptiness about them. They have an emptiness that they want to fill, and they keep confusing having things. Because, you see, for the average person in the world, they'll see somebody who lives in a big mansion, who drives a sports car, who has a private jet, who's going to all these cool places, And we turn those people into heroes and they're miserable many times, but we keep worshiping them thinking, if I only had that, everything will be great for me. And this is the problem with lottery winners. You know, suddenly they have everything and then they blow through it and they have nothing. And they having gone through all of that, they're more unhappy. And so I think that's the other lesson to learn here is that Unless your intention is directed at being of service to others, it will not manifest. And that's like, say, I want to be a doctor not to make money. I want to be a doctor to be of service and help people. And that will make you a success. We get all the other things, if you choose or want them, that uh, you can enjoy. But the other thing is understanding that the greatest cause of suffering has to do with attachment and craving, and this is what also people get lost in is they keep wanting to have that transitory high of accomplishing something, and then when they don't get it, of course they 're completely down, and they feel themselves a failure. But the other side of that coin is, you know we have events that are down events, if you will, and we sit there, "Oh God, is this going to last forever? This is horrible." But the reality is, those are also transitory as well, generally speaking. But those experiences are the ones that give you great insight into yourself. They show your resilience, they teach you wisdom, they give you insights. So, on some level, there are interesting paradoxes here about both of these extremes. But the most important thing, though, is to carry each and not be attached to either. And this is this concept of equanimity, this evenness of temperament in the face of these extremes, where you are not attached to either. And it also, in some ways, relates to this concept of wabi-sabi. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. It's a Buddhist and Japanese narrative or aesthetic, but it's this idea of the nature of who we are and our lives. We are imperfect, we are incomplete, and we are impermanent. And when you understand that, then you get some other insights. The other thing that I would like to just comment on is also a associated Japanese aesthetic, which is this concept of Sugi. And this is this idea that occurred in the 15th century Japan, where pottery was very expensive, it would break and it was fixed with glue. But what happened over time was these pieces of pottery that actually would be with an individual for 10, 15, 20 years or passed down to his family, they started repairing them with golden glue. And the idea being that all of us, on some level, are broken, but we've been repaired. And that brokenness is not something we need to be ashamed of or try to hide. It is that brokenness that has allowed us to become the special person that we are. And so when you're able to see that and you're able to stand up and say, I am imperfect, but I've done the best I can, and recognize it's okay. We're all that way. And anyone who implies anything different is not telling the truth. And so being able to stand up and be your authentic self and accept yourself is critically important if you wish to be happy. You know, oftentimes I get in front of a crowd and I'll tell a story that is emotional for me and I'll shed a tear or my voice will crack. And what this does is it suddenly allows everyone to cry and to sit with that emotion, because so many people are afraid of being judged by others. See, and that's what limits us, is this idea that everyone is looking at us, and they're going to judge us. And and the reality is, the first thing is, frankly, nobody cares about you, Mm -hmm. (laughs) in many cases. yet we think we're being watched, and all these people are making judgments about us. But the other thing is, it doesn't matter. It's okay to be who you are. Nobody has the right to judge you. No one is perfect. And so I have no problem getting in front of people and showing my humanity. And it's interesting in all of my experiences, and I'll tell you the one that wasn't the case. But in all of my experiences, when I show that emotion, people want to come up and hug me. They want to embrace me. They want to soothe me. And that's our normal human evolution is to soothe someone who is suffering. And the only exception to that was I gave a talk one time and a woman came up to me and she said, I felt so sorry for you up there. You must have been so ashamed and embarrassed. Your voice cracked. You were crying. I just could feel your pain up there. And it was it was so bad. I'm sure it was just horrible. And she goes, listen, I'm a psychiatrist and a hypnotherapist. Oh, if yeah. you come to me for three sessions, I'll get rid of that. And I wow! At and I that just started laughing. Right? Yeah, That that's- is what makes me human. That's how I connect with people. And that's what people actually want. They want someone who is not afraid of showing their humanity. Yeah.
1: I mean, every single thing you just said, it was just like, one Van Gogh painting after another each chunk. No, really. I mean, every chunk of sentences was just like, so enriching, so beautiful. It reminds me. So my version of meeting someone like Ruth was when I was 21, I I went to Jerusalem on this 10 day trip. I thought I was going to come back in 10 days. I met this very holy Kabbalist who lived with his wife and seven kids in the old city of Jerusalem. And I stayed for three years and his love and kindness to me and his taking me in and teaching me the laws of Kabbalah and living in this place and not seeing a TV for three years and not seeing an ad for some, like, I just, I grew so much, which is why I think I really related to your book. And also my mom was suicidal growing up. My dad was an alcoholic. My parents got divorced. We didn't have a lot of money, but I didn't become a, a neurosurgeon and I don't know the Dalai Lama and I don't, I don't teach at Stanford, but some of the other parts were the same. And I say this because I remember going to Jerusalem and, and like a few weeks into learning with him, I said, I really want you to teach me like the most spiritual, you know, thing I can learn. So he writes, he scribbles on a piece of paper and address and I'm like, oh my gosh, where am I going to go? And he tells me, I want you to go to this door. You're going to make a left and then a right. You're going to see a blue door and you knock on this door. And I told her you're coming. I'm like, oh my gosh. Okay. And then it turns out, I say, what's there? And he goes, well, she has a lot of children. Her husband died. You're going to do her dishes. And I went and did this woman's dishes and I came back sobbing. And he goes, how good did that feel? He goes, you want to know the secret of the universe? Go help somebody you want a spiritual high go do someone's dishes that was the beginning of me really understanding he had much more to teach me than i thought but um it's so powerful what you just laid out because this feeling of happiness is in giving to others and bob waldinger was just here he just completed not really completed they're still doing it but it's like the longest study ever on happiness 75 year study what did they find that makes people happy who they connect to their relationships, showing up in their relationships, having a good relationship, depositing into other people. That That's it. That's what makes people happiest, right? Nothing else. Nothing else is sustainable. I want to ask you a question. And then I want to ask you one last thing about your podcast, but I have people ask me all the time, how do I sustain this feeling of well-being? Like, okay, so I could do something good for someone, or I can have a moment where I'm feeling great. I'm feeling appreciative and grateful, but then it drops. How do I sustain it? What's your answer to how do you sustain a feeling of well-being?
0: Well, unfortunately, you're creating the environment for failure. Again, you're attaching yourself to something. And therein lies the problem. You should be able to sit with yourself. And if you will, this is a mental state. This isn't necessarily always a doing state. And what I mean by that is if you are attuned to always being of service, and just sit with that, and not feeling some need to prove something or to be it, then (laughs) you are accomplishing what you're supposed to accomplish. Look, we are human beings. Our lives are not always going to be, oh, this is so great, I get to help somebody. No, there are going to be ups and down times, but you have to know that you're okay. You walk the walk, and that's all that counts. It's not about, you know, always saying, I'm doing this so I'll feel good about myself. That's irrelevant. It's about being comfortable with who you are, knowing who you are, and living a life that is focused on being of service and a purpose in your life. It's not about sitting there going, what's the next thing I can do that'll make me feel better? That you fall into the trap of craving and attachment,
1: which then equals suffering. That that makes perfect sense. Like therein lies the attachment, if you need it to feel a certain way all the time. And that is, it is really a beautiful response. My last thing I want to ask you before we get off is you have your own podcast into the magic shop. And I just want you to share one thing that you are enjoying from it, because I can't believe you find the time to, to write the books and speak. And then you do this podcast. There must be something that you find is enjoyable about that. And I'm curious, why do you love it? And what do you think listeners will get from listening to your podcast?
0: So it's interesting, as an example, John Hamm was on the podcast, which is the actor, right? Yeah. We did not talk any about his movies, nothing. What I was interested in is his journey and the suffering he went through and how he sees himself and the struggles he had right to get there and so that's always my query is where did you start and how or why did you end up where you're at it's not about going oh i saw that movie and it was the most it was amazing i'm not really interested in that now i say that but sure if that came up i would have a conversation <laughs> okay. but, but my point is that wasn't my primary goal or another example was hunter biden and hunter biden it's a picture that's painted as if everything he's ever done in his life is horrible. And don't get me wrong. He's done many horrible things, but this is looking at the nature of addiction. And also the fact that all of us carry baggage that drives our behaviors. Imagine if you grew up and were in the car where your sister and your mother died. Imagine he was always the number two. You know, you look at the, what's going on with Prince Harry as quote-unquote spare, and the trauma of living like that, well, in some ways, Hunter Biden was always the spare. His brother was the hero. His brother was the one who served in the military. He was the one who was presumed to carry the mantle of the Biden family, and he dies of a brain tumor. Oh my gosh. So now you have this individual who, because he was the spare, has some degree of insecurity, He has the issues related to his mother's death. And there's a history of alcoholism in the family. Right. It's so
1: so fascinating. You're right. When you look at it through all the lenses, and it is just amazing what you just laid out.
0: And the thing is, this is an individual who I may have uh, the school wrong, but I think he went to Georgetown and then I think got a law degree from Harvard. This is not a slouch. He was given positions in government by two presidents of different parties. He had a successful life, and then it all crumbled. So, you know, to sit him and and present him as a one-dimensional person is extraordinarily unfair. And so my interest is trying to understand, you know, what drives people. You know, I had a conversation with Khaled Hosseini, the author of The Kite Runner, And hearing his story is sort of fascinating.
1: Yeah, I read that book. It's amazing.
0: Yeah, I think understanding people beneath the surface is to me much more interesting and are important stories to tell. And also speaking to different teachers and understanding the wisdom that they are able to impart to people. You know, I've been very blessed to probably have known more spiritual and religious leaders on a personal level than probably anyone. I mean, whether it's uh, the Dalai Lama, Desmond Tutu, Thich Nhat Hanh, Amma the Hugging Saint, Eckhart Tolle, Byron Katie, Sadhguru, Guru, Sri Sri Ravi Shankar, Radha Swami. You know, these people have been my friends. But what's fascinating is people always go, well, aren't you an atheist? How do you relate to these people? <laughs> right, right. And what I tell people is when you interact with an evolved spiritual being, if you will, the issue is always about the exact same thing. Do you love? Do you care? Are you kind? Are you compassionate? It has zero to do with the dogma. In all the interactions I've had with these extraordinary, amazing people, there's never been a discussion about dogma.
1: Yeah. Well, when there's there's love present, that other stuff wouldn't be in the conversation. Right. And, and it's interesting. I just recently had a conversation with my rabbi about this, the same kabbalist. We still meet every single week on zoom for 20 years. And he said, so often, he says, when I get down to it and I talk to someone who's an atheist, I feel exactly the way they do because he believes in a God that is the oneness of the world, right? The energy that is the oneness, this unified field. And he's like, Very often we just use different words to talk about the exact same thing, this one consciousness. And so I just think it's beautiful that you have such a love of love that you want to just invite these people in who really embody love. Byron Katie and Thich Nhat Hanh are very different, but they're not because their love is palpable. Like that's what moves you. You sit with her. I had her on the show. All your problems melt away when you talk to her. Because the vibration of love is so constant that nothing else stays there. You just can't move from it, right? same thing with Thich Nhat Hanh. So I'm so appreciative that you are who you are. I love that you're speaking, podcasting, writing new books. You're amazing. I can't believe I was intimidated to meet you. And then I thought, why would I be intimidated if he's really loving? It's not going to be intimidating because love is not intimidating. And you were so loving. So thank you for being here.
0: Let me share something else I'm working on, which might interest some of your listeners. So as you know, we have a mental health crisis in the world, especially among youth. And in fact, I did an event with the U.S. Surgeon General and Shri Shri Ravi Shankar in D.C. in May. And then I did a program with Selena Gomez a few months ago. But uh, what do you
1: not do? Like, I don't even Like, And then I did this. No big deal. What is happening? Stop.
0: (laughs) But I had an idea a few years ago, and it was to create a mental health app. And of course, unfortunately, there are 350,000 mental health apps, of which 99.99% are not used. But this is somewhat different in that it is like our conversation here, where you're there and there's a screen of me. But what it does is it assesses your emotional state on the fly. Then what it does is it uses conversational AI that has been primed with psychology and compassion-focused dialogue connected to a human avatar, which has the ability to, based on your emotional state, change its facial expression and interaction with you. And it's a very interesting project. I'm sort of fiddling with the MVP at the moment here. So...
2: Oh
1: my God, I cannot wait to experience more of that. Thank you for that. Tell everybody where they can follow along with you, where they can find the podcast. Just send them wherever you want to send them and then we'll put links in the show notes to the podcast and your book and everything else.
0: So the first thing is the center I run at Stanford, which is C-C-A-R-E, two C's, edu. The reason I mentioned that is There are actually two programs that we do. One is called an Applied Compassion Training Program, which is an 11-month-long certification program. And these are individuals typically from healthcare, corporate environment, or the mind-body wellness space. And we mentor you on the development of a capstone project, which you take back to your organization. We have people from 60 countries in that course. We also have a new program called Cultivating the Heart, which is an eight-week-long program that's all online and teaches you some of these techniques of self-compassion. Oh, my compassion God, that's so others. incredible. In terms of the podcast, you can find that at intothemagicshop.com forward slash podcast. And in terms of the app I just mentioned to you, you can find that at happy, H-A-P-P-I dot A-I. And if you want to send me a note, and I always regret saying this, Uh, you can reach me at jrdoty, d-o-t-y at stanford.edu. And it's interesting because sometimes I'll get two or 300 emails in a day, which is quite overwhelming sometimes. But, you know, there's some people who actually really need to be allowed to say what's bothering them or what hurts them. And that's okay.
1: You are so rare. The fact that you even think to say that is just incredible. And you know what, whether you even have a chance to get back to everyone or not, the fact that you provide a space, you're right. Sometimes people just need to say what they need to say. I appreciate everything you shared. And I'm so grateful to have had this time. Thank you so much for for coming on.
0: You take care. And it's a blessing. So I appreciate it.
1: Thank you, doctor. That was truly One of a kind, that conversation. All right. Here are the takeaways. Number one, within ourselves is an incredible amount of strength and capacity to do what we think is impossible. Number two, you deserve to be loved. You are worthy. Number three, when you want something to manifest, your intention has to focus on being of service to others. True happiness is about being of service and having a purpose. Number four, the bad experiences are the ones that give you great insight into yourself. They show you your resilience. They teach you your wisdom. Carry the high and low moments without being attached. Number five, all of us on some level are broken, but we've been repaired. And that brokenness is not something to be ashamed of. It's that brokenness that has allowed us to become the special person that we are. Number six, if you want to be happy, you must be able to stand up, be your authentic self and accept yourself. It's okay to be who you are. Nobody has the right to judge you. No one is perfect. Number seven, what people actually want is someone who is not afraid of showing their humanity. And number eight, if you're attuned to being of service without the need to prove anything, then you're accomplishing what you're supposed to accomplish. Well being is about being comfortable with who you are, knowing who you are, and living a life that is focused on being of service and in purpose in your life. Thank you so much for listening. You have no idea how much gratitude I have and how much love I have for you. Thank you so much for being here. Last week I interviewed Adam Pascal, who was the lead... He played Roger in Rent on Broadway, and we have so many great guests coming up. Sophia Moroso is coming up. I interviewed her recently, Julia Cameron, Amy Porterfield. There's just so many good episodes coming up, so please follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify because we don't want you to miss anything. I'd also love to hear what you think about the show, so go ahead and leave us your review. And we're doing a giveaway this week. If you go to kathyheller.com slash share and just... Go to that link and share with us a little bit about you, your dreams, the obstacles, how we can help you. We're going to be giving away two Nordstrom gift cards this week. If you just go ahead and share with us a little bit of what's on your mind, you can go to kathyheller.com slash share to enter that raffle and share with us how you are and what's on your mind. And if you know anyone who would appreciate this episode, then send them a link or email them a link, or you could post about it on your Instagram and your stories. And you could tag Dr. James Doty at James R. Doty, M.D. I know he would love to see your tags. And you could tag me as well at Kathy.Heller. And finally, if you'd like to join me in Abundant Ever After in my program this year, you can go to kathyheller.com slash join. You could also go to the DMs in my Instagram and somebody will be there to answer questions about the program. I love you. I'll leave you with- the song and I'll talk to you soon.